it can be, you know, kind of a tricky, a tricky thing to actually tackle since a lot of the wisdom for getting rid of SIBO is the exact opposite of what, you know, any microbiome scientist or specialist will tell you to do in order to foster a good microbiome. Welcome to the Quacks and Hypochondriacs podcast. We're here to separate quack from fact in the health and fitness and wellness industry. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Farrow. I am the founder of betterhealth.com. And today's episode, we're going to be talking about SIBO and some other fun acronyms with our guest, Phoebe Lapine. So my guest is a food and health writer, a gluten-free chef, but sometimes I bet you create stuff that's not just gluten-free, I'm assuming. Um, she's a speaker and a voice behind the award-winning blog, Feed Me Phoebe, beautiful name, uh, named by Women's Health Magazine as the top nutrition read of 2017. And it was your debut memoir, The Wellness Project, Chronicles and Their Journey of the Autoimmune Disease Hashimoto's Thyroiditis. She's the host of the SIBO Made Simple podcast and author of a new book coming out, which I already checked out on Amazon, which is the name of the newly diagnosed of chronically fighting small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. That's what SIBO, SIBO stands for. Phoebe, Welcome to Quacks and Hypochondriacs. Thank you for having me. I love the name of your show. Thank you. My wife did not. My wife thought <laughs> it was awful. Uh, <laughs> she's like, we're all going to make fun of you. And I'm like, they already do. I'm a quack chiropractor. What, you know, let's just join. Let's just beat them. Let's join them. So thank you for saying so. And so I'd like to just kind of get right into, tell us what SIBO is. Sure. So as you mentioned before, it stands for small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And it's really kind of an issue of location, not type. Um, a lot of people, you know, kind of throw around some of the hot catchphrases these days in gut health and, you know, kind of assume that we have just, you know, these microbes every which way. And while it's true, you know, kind of every area of our digestive tract has its own unique population and ecosystem, the small intestine is really not designed to withstand, you know, a huge population of bacteria. Most of those little critters are in our large intestine where they actually have a role in facilitating with the digestive process. But in the small intestine, that is where you absorb your nutrients um, into your bloodstream and kind of reap the rewards of what you're eating. And so if you have other beings at the table competing for that food, um, it can cause a whole host of issues. And, you know, kind of the main symptoms that dovetail with SIBO are kind of the primary diagnostic criteria for IBS. So, you know, intense bloating, diarrhea, constipation, flatulence, and whatnot. But the bloating with SIBO can be really, really severe because when that bacteria, you know, starts eating your food, they release gas. And since that gas is now so far away from an exit ramp, it can get trapped and can try and find its way out in other ways like burping, which I think is an interesting SIBO symptom that I personally dealt with and was kind of like my personal aha moment of like, this is different and strange. <laughs> um, and yeah, then, you know, because it can cause damage, the gas itself and the bacteria themselves, once there's, you know, kind of an issue with the intestinal lining and leaky gut slash intestinal permeability, then you can kind of experience kind of a whole host of autoimmune spectrum symptoms. So anything from joint pain, of course, nutrient deficiencies, food sensitivities, um, it can really kind of span, 
you know, a range of things. Everyone kind of experiences inflammation in different ways. I'm not a joint person personally. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a thyroid person, but you know, you've seen the whole spectrum. So that's kind of SIBO in a nutshell, but it can be, you know, kind of a tricky, a tricky thing to actually tackle since, a lot of the wisdom for getting rid of SIBO is the exact opposite of what, you know, any microbiome scientist or specialist will tell you to do in order to foster a good microbiome in the large intestine. Absolutely. First of all, I want to commend you. That was probably the best synopsis of SIBO I have ever heard <laughs> and with such great analogies and uh, I, I'm just phenomenal. So thank you for that. You mentioned about the inflammation, right? Showing up, you know, you're not the joint person, but you're the thyroiditis person. Let's dive into that uh, because that is something that personally, what led me to create better health and do this elimination reintroduction was I watched so many people fail. We're flipping tires in parking lots. I think you mentioned the traditional approaches of what they were supposed to be eating based upon, you know, I'm dating myself back then the food pyramid and counting calories <laughs> and all that stuff. And when none of that worked, they sent them in for testing. And at the time, the testing was basically test your thyroid. There was no other testing and people were not making the connection between joint pain and IBS. Like these were all segmented. So thyroid issues came up a lot. And I, I think falsely, we have been destroying people's thyroids out of, you know, for no reason when it's hyper or hypo. Talk to us about how you came about. I think you had your own journey with Hashimoto's. Talk a little bit about that journey and how it showed up for you. Yeah. So I was diagnosed when I was 22 and I consider myself very lucky because, you know, so many women are just given, you know, a generic kind of TSH test, which basically kind of is the barometer for how your thyroid is doing, but it's not the full picture. So I was very lucky in that I had um, kind of my regular childhood doctor was someone who did the full panel. And so I knew immediately that I had kind of the autoimmune version of hypothyroidism. And at the time, you know, things were kind of functioning okay. And I was told to just go on medication, go on Synthroid, which is, you know, one of the most um, prevalent medications in America and, you know, be on my way. I just have to be on it for the rest of my life. And that last part didn't really resonate so well with me because my, um, my mom was kind of an early adopter of, you know, organic food and homeopathy and all these, you know, woo woo things. And, you know, even though I took antibiotics, you know, all sorts of medications, just the idea of being reliant on a pill for the rest of my life wasn't something I wanted to sign up for. So I just left the office and pretended the conversation never happened and went on living my life. And that was also not the right move as it turns out, because I really, really wound myself down to like a pretty serious rock bottom over the years. Um, I just quit my corporate job to work full time as like a food woman of many trades. And so I was catering and private chefing and working very physical job. And, you know, my skin just started to completely rebel. I had this horrible rash on my face. My hair was falling out. I was just exhausted all the time. I had to stop exercising because I got a terrible cramp every time I tried to run and would just be like, crushed with soreness afterwards. And of course, even though I was exhausted all the time, I couldn't sleep. I had like horrible night sweats and insomnia. So eventually I ended up in the office of someone with a little bit more of a holistic perspective and went on an elimination diet and ended up taking gluten out permanently and just, you know, got a little bit more on board with, with the program, um, with the more holistic program. And now I'm kind of on a mix of 
medication and have kind of found these lifestyle pinnacles that, you know, I need in order to stay chugging on all levels. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And do you think had you understood, let's say SIBO or the gut bacteria early on, like, can you think to childhood and say, you know, I, I did have, unfortunately had to go on antibiotics or was there any other exposure that you think that kind of led to that, you know, initial issue? Oh, for sure. I have, you know, a very storied past, like with lots of dots to connect that, you know, eventually led to autoimmune disease. And I think, you know, the analogy that's always stuck with me is that, and it's actually the same thing for, for SIBO to some extent is that it's usually not one thing over the years, we kind of, you know, put Tinder in the box and eventually there is usually some sort of catalyst event that lights the whole thing on fire, be it stress, be it a parasite or food poisoning or a toxic exposure. But, you know, there's, there was a lot of Tinder (laughs) in my box for sure. I was on birth control for 10 years. I really do think that had a significant impact on my gut health and also just my hormonal health. Cause like many women, I went on it, you know, not for contraceptive reasons, but because I had hormone imbalances so that my body never really was able to figure out on its own. Um, I ate a trash diet in college. I drank too much, you know, the whole, the whole gambit. And then, you know, my catalyst event was when I graduated from college, I went on a trip to Morocco and I got horrible food poisoning. And my gut was just never the same. And I don't think it's any surprise that I, you know, developed Hashimoto's at some point in the six months afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that first of all, your story resonates with just about every human I come in contact with. (laughs) And I think you just said, there's all these dots and there's the Tinder that's filling the box and something throws it over the edge. In regards to bacterial overgrowth, you said something in your opening statement or two things. Number one, it's competing for food, right? That you shouldn't have that overgrowth of bacteria in that small intestine. So large intestines is where that's why we have that good, healthy fiber every day. So it can go and, and ferment and do its job in the large intestine. But in the small intestines, is not really a great area. And two things you said, one, you're competing for food, right? With this bacteria. So that's going to zap your energy. Number two, it could potentially lead to that leaky gut process to let bad stuff into your system because of the inflammation. And three, you said, okay, the gas has nowhere to go, right? So that's where the bloating comes from. When it comes for testing for SIBO, talk about the two different tests that you can design. And I'm you know, leading you into this, of course, have <laughs> been part of it, but I think it's important to people to know what two tests are out there. If they're suspecting this, what they can do. Yeah. So the main test is a breath test and essentially you're testing for several different gases. And that's important because it dictates, you know, how you can best treat your particular case of SIBO. And we talk about this, you know, with the microbiome at large, like in the large intestine, your own specific ecosystem is more individual than your fingerprint. And so you have to assume that the same is true, even with an overgrowth, you know, it's going to be different for everyone, but we can kind of, you know, paint with broad strokes. Um, and guess at like what the dominant populations that are overgrowing just by seeing what types of gases are, you know, prevalent at too high level in your system. So essentially the way the breath test works, and I think it's really fun and interesting is you kind of prepare for 24 hours before fast overnight. And then the morning of your test, you drink a sugar solution. There's several different kinds. The most popular one is something called lactulose, which is a synthetic solution that, you know, you do not absorb in your body. The only thing that's going to be eating it is some sort of critter bacteria or, um, archaea. And so you breathe into a tube every 
15 minutes and essentially back at the lab, they test and see, you know, what levels of these gases appear in your breath as in theory, the sugar solution is making its way slowly through your digestive tract. So if they see, you know, a big spike around the three hour mark, that's totally normal. That's when it's made its way to your large intestine, where, as we mentioned, there are tons of bacteria, so you should see a spike. But if you see something too early on, that's an indication that maybe something you don't want is overgrowing somewhere in your tract that you don't want it. Got it. And then how does it determine, we talk, talk about the type of course. So is there levels of gas gases that would say, you know, this is more E. coli or how, how do you know that you know, your treatment, basically, what, what is it in the test that can help you guide you? Yeah. So the three types of gases are hydrogen, methane, and hydrogen sulfide for hydrogen gases. E. coli is kind of in the mix usually in terms of the types of bacteria in that group that tend to overgrow with SIBO, but again, it could be anything and it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, quote unquote, good or bad bacteria. It's just, you know, some, it could be good guys too. And, you know, E. coli and, you know, small doses like is totally normal. The methanogens, you know, those aren't exactly bacteria. Um, they're their own ancient, <laughs> um, thing critter. Um, and they need a, a kind of a slightly different targeting both you know, via the herbal route or via the antibiotic route. And then hydrogen sulfide is kind of, you know, a subcategory that's an indication that you have something going on with your sulfur pathway. So all of these things, you know, indicate that there's some sort of root cause in your digestive tract that's causing, you know, obviously the overgrowth for things not to move or function normally. It's not like SIBO is a disease in and of itself. It's just a sign that something's gone wrong in the body. And, you know, with hydrogen sulfide in particular, that's, you know, part of the root cause matrix, but any root cause can kind of produce any kind of SIBO. You know, it's kind of an issue of stagnation or a structural issue. And then, you know, obviously bacteria making its way that far without being killed. So not enough stomach acid, being immunocompromised or what have you. Yeah. So the three I think your components are, you know, motility, right? It's not moving through that area swift enough is probably a, a, a good one. And, you know, given our state of uh, lethargic lifestyles, because we are so stressed out and, yeah. and not having the energy to move, then we don't move. And then of course this stuff backs up. The second one you mentioned potentially could be lack of stomach acid to help break things down. And I oftentimes think that that lack of stomach acid is the fact that we're eating food that the body doesn't recognize, but stagnation seems to be a real common one. Mm. Do you, we, we focus on the food, you know, low FODMAP, gluten-free elimination reintroduction. I think you and I are very well aligned there. Do you incorporate anything like yoga or rebounding or any other things to help people with that motility part of it? Yeah. I mean, I'm not a practitioner myself, so I just kind of curate all of the information and data that's out there. And then of course, what practitioners are seeing in their practices, since, you know, with SIBO, there's still a lot of question marks that needs to be validated. It's a fairly new diagnosis. So I think that, you know, practitioners who have specialized in this are truly at the forefront right now of, you know, kind of what it's working and what's not. So yeah, absolutely. So with the stagnation piece, as you mentioned, stress is actually a huge culprit. I actually think it was my personal um, catalyst event for SIBO because all of my other root causes have been there for years. 
Hashimoto's being one of them. So managing your stress, getting enough sleep um, is super important. I think actually kind of how you eat is more important than what you eat. So making sure that you're kind of optimizing for your migrating motor complex, which is that kind of cheap chief street sweeper wave that's responsible for motility in the small intestine. It's like kind of what cleans up after a meal and gets all the debris that can gather in the incredibly long and winding and craggy small intestines into the next place where it needs to be. So when that breaks down, that's kind of one of the reasons why SIBO, you know, can develop. Stress is one thing that can cause the migrating motor complex to break down. A second thing is snacking. I mean, it only kicks in during a fasting state of 90 minutes or more. So if you're eating constantly, even if it's quote unquote healthy, even if it's foods that agree with your system, you are not going to be allowing that mechanism to be kicking into gear. So I think that's something for a lot of people to think about. And I know for a lot of people who have dealt with SIBO, kind of figuring out meal spacing, not necessarily intermittent fasting, but just spacing out your meals by a few hours has been really, really helpful for them. Um, I also think not eating too close to bedtime is important because the migrating motor complex, our digestion in general, does not really function overnight. It goes into sleep mode kind of as it gets dark out. For a lot of us, you know, in this modern world, we're not eating according to our circadian rhythms anymore and that's okay. Um, but at the very least, we want to be getting our meals in a few hours before bedtime. Otherwise, if you think about it, you know, if the migrating motor complex hasn't done its job yet, then it's just going to be kind of festering and sitting in your small intestine overnight, which is no good. Let's see what else. Chewing your food, of course, very, very important. Um, and then getting enough sleep because, you know, that's really when our liver goes into gear and cleans our blood and make sure that, you know, antibodies for those of us with autoimmune issues are cleared, make sure that our hormones are, you know, properly balanced and excess hormones are cleared. So I think that, you know, our liver is kind of the unappreciated important factor in our digestive system, both for SIBO, for you know, Hashimoto's or any sort of hormone issue. And let's see what else. There's so many things, hydration, you know, it's kind of all of the, the common sense, um, important pinnacles kind of, as I mentioned before that I had to get under control with my Hashimoto's and the wellness project, but I think yoga is great. Anything that any form of exercise that can calm you down and reduce your stress levels while also, you know, making sure that things are flowing in the body is great. Uh, fascinating. And I think that what's to give it back to the listeners, it's like number one, we, hydration. Number two, spacing out the meals so your body can actually digest what it has properly. And then that migrating motor complex can come in and do its, its job and eat a while and walk a mile, right? <laughs> get Eat and then get some motility afterwards. So you can actually help that, that complex out. And what will end up happening is I think that will lead to better sleep right? That you're eating the proper way. You're controlling the inflammation. You're controlling, it will help with co controlling cravings. There'll be that motility and it will help you fall asleep. And the longer you're asleep, of course, then your body can, can do its recovery. So really, really great tips there. And I think for people to understand the mechanisms of the body makes it easier to, to act. Yes. Absolutely. You just say, when you just say walk or, you know, space between meals, like, okay. But when you say, Hey, you know, you're shutting down that migrating motor complex, like, wait, what, what am I doing? <laughs> I don't <laughs> want to do that. That doesn't sound good. Uh, so I think you're the way you're describing things is really going to help people to understand the physiology behind it so that they have more, uh, why factor of why they want to accomplish this in your 
your books, your recipes. I've checked out your blog. Your recipes look amazing. So particularly for our listeners, better health customers, uh, you know, we have 200 something recipes. You really need to go check out some of our recipes. They're beautiful. They're gorgeous. They are well aligned with what we would recommend. So go, go definitely check those things out. In regards to making SIBO easy, the other thing you mentioned is there's some things that we're doing now that actually could be going against the SIBO. So one of those things could be taking probiotics. Um, maybe you're making it worse. So as an example, we have a probiotic line and I always tell people, I'm like, look, it's food first, it's water, it's all those other things. These supplements are just insurance at some point. Uh, you really want to have fermented food, sauerkraut. You want to get it from the natural sources, good kombucha. And in some cases, it's not recommended to have a probiotic. Is the same true for fermented foods? Uh, kombucha is the same, Greek yogurt for folks that have SIBO. Yeah. I mean, if you have an acute case of SIBO, these foods may irritate you. I don't think with diet, there's A, nothing that's data backed specifically for SIBO. Low FODMAP has got a lot of data for IBS. We know IBS has a huge overlap with SIBO. So you can deduce what you will with that. Um, but essentially it's really just a band-aid for the symptoms, the low FODMAP diet. And, you know, kind of I think the most difficult aspect for SIBO people is getting from point A to point B, because we don't want to completely forget about kind of the rules of thumb for general gut health, because we know that, you know, having some sort of dysbiosis is going to make us more likely to get SIBO. We kind of don't know the exact mechanism that correlates between the two, but it's certainly a risk factor. So we don't want to be whittling our diet down to five things just because, you know, someone told us to. So if you don't react to kombucha or Greek yogurt or fermented foods, and you have SIBO, you've gotten a diagnosis, don't worry about it. If you don't react to something, just eat it because you want to keep that diversity because the end goal is, of course, to have as diverse a diet as possible to feed that incredibly diverse array of microbes in your gut. So the reason why a lot of SIBO people may be reactive to those things is for several reasons. One of them that I don't think is talked about enough is histamine. So any sort of fermented or aged foods tend to have a higher level of histamine. And because of the nature of having an increased population of bacteria and because of some of the damages damage that that causes to the small intestines where you produce this enzyme that breaks down histamine, it can kind of create a vicious cycle where you just have too much in circulation. And that is where you start to notice that certain things in your diet could be fanning the flames because there's, as I mentioned with the fermented foods and with a few other foods, you know, there is just naturally histamines that we're ingesting every single day through the foods in our life. Um, so that's one thing. And then, yeah, the other thing is in terms of probiotic pills, again, if you have that stagnation and you're taking a pill with more critters in it and it's getting stuck, you could be adding to the population that you're trying desperately to clear with medication or herbs. So it's kind of counterintuitive, but you know, there are some protocols, some types of of probiotics that are used with SIBO, kind of the soil-based ones. Um, some people use uh, Saccharomyces boulardii, which is a beneficial yeast. I don't know if I pronounced it right, but <laughs> it's a very long, long word. Way. Yeah. <laughs> so there are different approaches and there are a lot of contradictions in SIBO. So, you know, if I'm saying something that's different than what your, you know, practitioner recommends, 
check out my book. There's a really good overview of kind of all the different possibilities and the whys behind them. And then you can kind of see what works for your specific body, because even, you know, the most time-tested methods may not work for you and you may have to try something else in the toolkit. I totally agree. And we've always done the elimination reintroduction. Some of it is FODMAP, but then through clinical observation, you know, what, what I just eventually started people initially had them logging all their food. Luckily now with uh, better technology, we just have them take pictures of it and then teach (laughs) teach them to correlate how they're feeling, their sleep, their poop, their mood and and their weight and look at their pictures and just figure out what works best for them. So there's certain things on the FODMAP diet that I was like, you know what? FODMAP doesn't allow it, but I allow it because I haven't noticed after so many people going through it, but I have noticed with SIBO, probably when we have people with SIBO go through this process, I'm going to throw it at a number. I'm going to say it's 80 plus percentage can see relief very quickly, 10% some relief. And then there's that 10% that either gets worse or there's nothing. And that those are the ones that I start scratching my head on, right? Because the contradiction is, well, then maybe you do need antibiotics, right? To, to help, but then I'm doing, then I'm destroying everything else. So I always find myself as a practitioner, just kind of stuck at that, those 10% of the people that I'm like, man, what can we do? I don't want to recommend the antibiotics because it's going to napalm everything else. Or is it recommend the antibiotics and then high, you know, get, make sure you have the motility, make sure you're, you're doing all the other lifestyle things, which luckily we're able to get them to do. And then just overload with good healthy bacteria to repopulate that yeah. You know, that system. I'm, I'm curious what your, your thought is on the antibiotic thing. Uh, Cause we had a Dr. Goff on recently and her whole job of course, is to educate people uh, and doctors or uh, her fellow doctors, like stop prescribing antibiotics. You are, you're creating these super bugs so that when we do need them, they're not working. So what's your, what's your stance on the antibiotic thing? Yeah. So rifaximin is one of the main antibiotics for hydrogen dominant SIBO. And that one, you know, has pretty compelling data behind it and just being targeted specifically for SIBO. So not having an effect on the large intestines and not certainly, you know, killing indiscriminately. It stays in the small intestine. So I think that's one that you can feel good about taking. It has other downsides, like it's really expensive and, you know, like anything, you don't want to be taking round upon round of it. If it's not, you know, making any progress for you again, that's when you kind of rotate into different options for methane SIBO, kind of the second agent that is added is a traditional broad spectrum antibiotic. And yeah, I mean, that is not ideal at all. Um, you can experiment with adding Allison garlic as kind of the herbal component to tackle the methane. Um, I know that some people kind of do a hybrid approach. They'll do the rifaximin plus the Allison, or they'll just do, you know, kind of a broad spectrum herbal and the Allison, but I also think just like more, more broadly, and this has, you know, no data. This is just my personal (laughs) two cents, but you know, kind of the most important part about making sure that SIBO doesn't become chronic is just investigating about the root causes, seeing, you know, what in your health history is, you know, causing this overgrowth. And so many people overlook that 
so many practitioners overlook that, which is often why it becomes chronic. But I also think that there's nothing wrong with kind of tackling those root causes first, because you're going to have to tackle them anyway. And who knows, you know, maybe some of these less invasive and more therapeutic treatment plans like body work for those with structural issues or, you know, taking a prokinetic for those with motility issues, be it natural or otherwise, or, you know, hypnotherapy for IBS, you know, if stress or <laughs> any sort of, you know, I mean, I think hypnotherapy is important for even people who like don't have anxiety and stress. I mean, it's all subconscious, so you don't really know what's at play and what's who's driving the ship. So yeah, essentially, I think that there are a lot of different ways to skin the fish with SIBO. And unfortunately, you know, because of the nature of the root causes, you may have to try all these different modalities anyway. So you know, if you are wary of antibiotics, you know, you can start there. There's nothing wrong with that. I 100% agree. Curious as to your, the, what we're doing every day. So I wake up in my home. What is the, like the number one thing I need to worry about? Is it, you know, the air quality? Is it the tap water? It, you know, what other things are contributing to this overgrowth that is just in my household environment that I need to be aware of? Yeah. I mean, I think absolutely the chemicals and toxins in your home, which, you know, could be anywhere, but I think the tap water is a really easy one to tackle. You can just do it as a one-time fix. And if you get, you know, a certain level of filter, you should only have to change the filter once a year. And that's also, it's so important for thyroid health to get, you know, the chlorine and the fluoride out of your water that is specifically tied to the health of our thyroid. And then again, for a lot of people, the thyroid is, is an underlying root cause of SIBO and other digestive issues. It becomes a vicious cycle. I have a lot of charts in my book of like <laughs> these vicious cycles that begin. I've mentioned the histamine one. Yeah. There's a lot that just, you know, continues, um, to spiral out of control once you let it. So I think that's a big one. And then, yeah, just all of the personal care products we use, um, especially for women, there tends to be a very, very full cabinet, the laundry detergent detergents and soaps we use as much as we can make that simple and natural. I think all for the better because all of these endocrine disruptors have downwind effects for the gut and for our hormones. And yeah, those two are just intertwined no matter how much we'd like them not to be. So you bring up some great points, particularly with chemicals. Uh, so women were always complaining to me that their husbands lose weight super fast. And I'm like, well, you're not, your husband doesn't put 18 to 19 chemicals on his body every single day. So you're already at a disadvantage. And so of course they would say, well, great, then what should I use? And for years I didn't have anything for them because every time I looked at the chemicals, uh, the labels, I was like, I can't even recommend it. It's Kismet. There's a guy local in North Carolina that makes an uh, organic skincare line that is so natural. You can actually pump it out and eat it. And so luckily we found that we put it on our sites called own botanicals because man, you don't realize how much you're bathing yourself in, in these things that are supposed to be natural, $180 a bottle. You know, you must think that it, it should be good, but it, it's not. And it, it's scary. And a lot of people don't really think that that could be causing it. And I say, well, they have a nicotine patch, right? You wear this patch so that you can get nicotine in the body. Well, what do you think is happening when you put these, these, these chemicals on, on your skin? Uh, so that is an important one. I think making sure your water is filtered, definitely an important part. And then lastly, I'm going to ask this for my co-host who couldn't be here today, Erin, who's lovely, and you would have really enjoyed the conversation. Um, she wants to know, 
uh, what's the deal with alcohol and SIBO? <laughs> And go and, and go gently because if you tell us you can't have alcohol. <laughs> yeah, no, I actually get this question all the time. And I think, you know, it's not like SIBO in itself is like means alcohol is a no-no. I think anyone who's going through any sort of quote unquote detox or kill phase or treatment plan, you know, maybe wants to consider what they're doing to support their liver. And unfortunately, you know, kind of the big guns to remove just to support our liver and let it, you know, get out of our own way are alcohol, caffeine, and sugar. You know, it's not to say like, you can't have a glass of wine with dinner every once in a while. I just think it's be mindful of what you're doing to your liver. Cause I don't think people realize, you know, even if your protocol is completely natural, just, you know, various herbs and whatnot, or supplements supplements, that's still a lot for your liver to handle. Your liver basically deals with everything coming into the body. Um, so even if all your ingredients are amazing, if it's, you know, 50 extra ingredients a day, you still have to consider, you know, kind of the workload. I think that's part of it. And then, you know, you know, it does have a halo effect on our general microbiome and sugar. I think it would be the most lethal of that combination for SIBO in particular and for, you know, our gut microbes and just fostering a better population. And some people think with SIBO, you know, even though it's not good versus bad, if you can just encourage, you know, the good guys to prosper, it kind of has a good halo effect. So reducing sugar as much as possible. I wasn't too rigid about it in my own SIBO experience and protocol, but, you know, again, and just supporting your body in, in every way you can, and then finding some moderation going forward. Got it. Okay. So I am a New York kid, grew up in New York. Uh, my son, unfortunately, has to be gluten-free. Otherwise, it just wreaks havoc on him. So uh, we live in North Carolina, but bringing him back up to New York, pizza, pizza, pizza. <laughs> Tell us, uh, you know, your top pizza places we can go that are gluten-free that I can still give him that New York experience, but in a gluten-free fashion. Do you have some uh, recommendations yes. for us? So I haven't found like a good New York slice that's gluten-free, but there's some like great Italian, like Neapolitan style pizzas that you can get here. My top one is a place called Fornino. Then there's a fancier restaurant called, um, oh my God, why am I just blanking? You got to think about it. My kid's super bougie. So he wants- Oh, great. Yeah, he's going to want- I've got it now. Loring Place. It's Dan Kruger's restaurant. He was one of the founding chefs of ABC Kitchen, which is a lovely bougie restaurant that you'll enjoy if you like, you know, great vegetables and good food. They have a grandma pie. So like one of those square pies, I guess like Detroit style um, (laughs) or Sicilian style, they make a really good gluten-free pie. There are a bunch of others. Two Boots is a chain in New York that has some really fun toppings and they have a gluten-free crust. And then there are a few other Italian places. Keste is one, uh, Rosa Pomodoro and have I said five yet? I'm blanking. I have an entire post on my site that you can put in the show notes for people and to take and, you know, check out next time you're in New York. Oh, without a doubt. Okay. So your your, lastly here is your cookbook. What I like about your, your cookbook is the visuals are so inviting that you're like, I have to cook that. Like it's really, really, really beautiful and well done. So we consider it low FODMAP. Can you explain what FODMAP means or low FODMAP means to people? 
Yeah. So it's an acronym that includes various kind of categories of carbohydrates and not carbohydrates kind of as you think about as, you know, pizza, bread, what have you, but you know, the actual, um, building blocks of our food, which are all carbohydrates. So FYI, you know, you can't just eat a diet that's completely devoid of carbohydrates unless you just ate meat. These various categories just tend to be a little bit more irritating for some people. And the point of the diet is to kind of take out some of the big guns and then see, you know, which of these categories tends to be the most problematic. And the interesting thing about the diet is that, as I mentioned, you know, FODMAPs make up all plant foods. So it's not like you're allergic to them. It's just that in certain ratios or quantities, they can be again, irritating to you. So, um, it's a weird diet because you can have like half a beet or, you know, an eighth of an avocado, um, without having symptoms. And that can be really hard to, keep in the back of your mind, which is where, why I think, you know, cookbooks like mine that do all of the hard, you know, math for you (laughs) and your recipes are really helpful, especially if you, you know, you're in the weeds with this kind of restrictive diet. Yeah. Agreed hundred percent with ours. When we looked at it, we do the elimination reintroduction to your points. Like if you had to start weighing things and thinking about it too much, it's, it's going to create more stress and that's the opposite effect. So what is your, you know, like maybe give me your top two meals, one of breakfast, or let's do three. Let's give me your top breakfast, lunch, and dinner out of your cookbook. I don't have too many breakfast recipes in the book again. Cause like the meal spacing thing, it tends to be the meal that SIBO folks will just skip, but I have a really delicious berry smoothie in there. Very, very smoothie. And for lunch, let's see, actually these sweet potato quinoa veggie burgers, sweet potatoes, kind of like a medium FODMAP ingredient, but the recipe obviously keeps it all and in perfect quantities. That's been a really popular one among the vegetarians. Um, the book is pretty much like 60 plus percent plant-based. So there are a lot of, a lot of options in there. Um, and then dinner, let's see, there's so many things to choose from and we're like getting into the summer months. There's this, um, if you like kind of Asian flavors, there is this turmeric dill catfish. That's really delicious. You can use kind of any fish you like, but it's just a sheet pan meal with these Vietnamese flavors and bok choy on the bottom. And it's really simple to make and just kind of interesting and also has lots of beautiful anti-inflammatory ingredients. The turmeric, obviously fresh ginger, fresh herbs, just a winner. Can we celebrate bok choy for a minute? Is it anything we can't do? I mean, when I finally started putting bok choy in my life, I'm like, where has this been? It is like, I know it pulls in all the flavors. It's super crunchy when you want it to be. It's yeah. up when you want it to be. I mean, I would marry a bok choy. And <laughs> I think if I was, if I was going, going back into the dating scene and I was doing a match, I'd say I'm looking for a bok choy type person. <laughs> And a question on the sweet potato, quinoa, veggie burgers. Is that something that someone can prepare and then freeze? So like you can make a bunch yes. of them? Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. That yeah. One. That's why they're great for lunch. Because with the low FODMAP diet, it, you know, I forgot to mention earlier, but garlic and onions, a big category, all the oleums, which makes it really hard to eat out, really hard to eat packaged foods, which is great for any healing period, therapeutic diet period. But, you know, it's really hard, you know, to kind of do all of these meals without any help. So yeah, certainly those burgers can replace your, your freezer veggie burgers. Excellent. Well, you have been a delight, honestly, just amazing information. So well said, great analogies, great way for people to really absorb this information. We want to just get your book out there. So just tell us, tell people where to find you. We'll put in the show notes, of course, but 
where do you like people to connect with you first? Is it on your blog or Instagram? Where would you like them to connect with you? Yeah, you can always find me on Instagram at Phoebe Lapine. And then my website's feedmephoebe.com. And you can find lots of free recipes and SIBO resources there. And then the book is SIBO Made Simple. And you can find that at sibomadesimple.com or wherever books are sold. Amazing. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining uh, Quacks and Hypochondriacs. I'm Dr. Bill Farrow from Better Health. That's our sponsor, BETRHealth.com. What an amazing company. Terrible name, but an amazing company. Thank you. This episode is edited and produced by Earfluence. And uh, that's a wrap for Quacks and Hypochondriacs. Have a great day, everyone. Hey there, listeners. Did you know we not only have an award-winning podcast, but we have an amazing blog to go with it? If you go over to BETRHealth.com and click on the blog button, you'll have access to recipes, member stories, food is medicine tips, and so much more. That's BETRHealth.com slash blog.